The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, May 24th, 2017 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Today, Trump, Donald J. Trump, bestowed upon the Pope an original edition of some of the works of Martin Luther King. No doubt dog-eared with the president's own underlines and scribblings and marginalia. Maybe it was this part in Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community? The white backlash had become an emotional electoral issue. In several southern states, men long regarded as political clowns had become governors or narrowly missed election. Their magic achieved with a witch's brew of bigotry, prejudice, half-truths, and whole lies. So maybe it was that. Maybe Trump was drawn to that. In where do we go from here? Chaos or community or clearly implied carnage. So, okay. This exchange of tomes between scholars notwithstanding, the trip has gone pretty well for Donald J. Trump. In fact, it probably helps that he is thousands of miles away right now with the CBO score on the healthcare bill just released. 23 million will lose coverage. What? What? Can't hear you over here in Belgium. There are other positive takeaways from the Trump trip. The New York Times newest conservative columnist, Brett Stevens, was on Facebook Live talking about his conversation with the New York Times other conservative columnist, Ross Duthat. And Stevens said this. I hope I'm not telling a tale out of school. Ross's thought was um, thermonuclear, uh, thermonuclear war. And, you know, back in January or December, mm. when, whenever we had this conversation, it was kind of a plausible uh, or not implausible yeah. thought. Less so after this trip, I feel slightly reassured that we're going to have a more or less stick with the, the foreign policy truisms. Nuclear anxieties allayed, though not everyone says theirs are totally gone. Here was Professor Dan Dresner on yesterday's Trump cast. I think our prior concern to him getting elected was this guy is such a loose cannon and is willing to act like such a madman that he might stumble into a war. My concern now is somewhat different. It's still that we're going to stumble into a war, but for very different reasons. Okay, so let's not reset the doomsday clock back that much. Remember when Obama had an unsuccessful trip? It was characterized as some dictator stiffed him at the airport. Such shame. Now Trump is having a successful trip, and the proof is some people feel a little bit less worried about nuclear war. Or just as worried, but in a different way. Hey, that's progress. On the show today, I speak of the victim of fallout of a non-nuclear nature. I spiel about a great return to the public sphere, one of our leading lights, who we feared was dimmed forever, but now promises to glow brightly once more. Yes, I speak of Billy Bush. (laughs) I could do anything. But first, we talk about the man who bragged of making ungentlemanly advances with an advance man. Josh King is here to talk about Trump's jaunt. It went pretty well. Or not. The 
This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The president, uh, Donald J. Trump, by the way, is traveling to five countries on two continents and meeting with over a dozen leaders. And so far, it's going, it's going not horrible. Listen, he could puke on a Belgian. Anything's possible. But this has gone, dare we say, well, here to discuss what Trump and his people are doing right, possibly nitpick a little bit about what went wrong, is Josh King. He uh, used to host the Polyoptics podcast. That's where I met him and loved him. And he is the author of Off Script, all about being a presidential advance man. Hey, Josh. Hey, Mike. Good to be with you. Are you surprised it's going well? No, not really. I think once you load up Air Force One, actually two Air Force Ones full of White House aides, Secret Service the beast limousine on the C-17 that flies into Saudi Arabia first, all the trappings of the United States government, once you put that sheen on top of Donald Trump's suit, you are the traveling United States. And that flag shows very proudly. And what you have seen over the first several days of the trip, we're about halfway through, is with some exceptions, Trump largely keeping his mouth shut and not going off script. He gave a pretty solid speech in Riyadh uh, about extremism and where President Clinton, even President Obama and President Bush would frequently get thrown off would be the openness that the White House press advance team tried to provide to the U.S. traveling press corps, which would say, let's pause and take their questions. Let's have these asides. Let's understand that domestic politics are still brewing. And you would have thought that the pool would have that same access to Trump to fling questions at him and Trump in his natural state would answer to the best of his ability. And yet, Mike, over the past four days, hardly at any answers to direct questions while so much is brewing back home. So are you saying that in the past, the uh, president of the United States and trying to show American values and the First Amendment would allow the press to have access and that would uh, cut them out at the knees sometimes overseas? We fought for it hard in the White House when I worked for President Clinton. 
the director of Press Advance, Ann Edwards, and then Jeremy Gaines, they would go on site surveys, a trip before the trip before the trip, and then the pre-advance, the trip before the trip, and get into negotiations and arguments with the host television networks, the castle uh, uh, the castle uh, governors, any place that we were going and insist that the press pool that we were bringing along with the president had to have full access to the president and could not be gagged, could mm-hmm. not be stopped from asking questions. Here we are on Wednesday. I'm reading the pool reports from Carol Lee, who is doing yeoman's work from the Wall Street Journal, starting very early this morning in Rome, finishing off her day in Belgium reading about 15 pool reports that she's filed and nary a question has been asked. You have a few thank you very muches from the president to the Pope. The Pope was great. A few asides picked up just by microphones or really straining your ear to hear, yeah. but no Sarah Netanyahu <laughs> saying something and then me only being able to understand it when they subtitle it on a tarmac. Yeah. I mean, the most interesting tidbit from today will be the Pope asking Melania Trump, what do you feed him? Pizza? Yeah. And she says, yes, pizza. I heard that the, that was a mistranslation and it wasn't pizza. It, it was right. a Slovenian dish. It was a Slovenian that, dish. Exactly. How about the Pope knowing like potiazza or something? But that's but <laughs> Therein lies the challenge of the pool reporter because Carol Lee wrote pizza on this pool report that she filed for everyone else to see. And if they don't run that down and check it out, yeah. then you're going to think that the Pope is making fun of Donald Trump and saying that he spends all of his time you know, at Ray's original. I take your point that once you have all the trappings, once you have all the uh, pageantry and the impressive um, military uh once you have all the impressive trappings, once you have the pageantry that comes along with everything that's presidential, it would seem to be harder to screw up than to get right. And yet, let's be honest, the people uh, in the Trump administration are the same ones who failed in their first travel ban, who failed to get health care through. I know that these are legislative issues versus optical issues, but I, th- I sense that there was some discomfort which with actually how government works and how these things work are the people planning this trip uh new to the job uh do they tap old hands who are the actual people who are getting it right and i guess my question is does it perhaps indicate growth that could translate to other more tangible areas of this administration it's a great question and we haven't been told much we know that Joe Hagan is the deputy chief of staff for operations, and Hagan was held that same position under George W. Bush with uh, scores of foreign trips under his belt. We know that President Trump's director of advance is George Gigikos, and George was responsible for the look and feel of the campaign, successful as it very much was rally by rally, city by city across the country. When you do a foreign trip, a lot has been made of why didn't you go to Mexico or Canada first? Just shake out the cobwebs because it takes a lot just to process 150 uh, diplomatic and official passports and as many for the traveling media on their charter. There's just a lot of logistics involved that you'd like to have the equivalent of a trip to Toronto or Ottawa or Montreal in to get it done when everyone speaks English and it's cool. To go to the Middle East, you tap into the existing travel bureau of the U.S. State Department, the uh, acting chief of protocol's office, if that chief of protocol has not been nominated and confirmed at, at ambassador rank by President Trump. And you do ride on the backs in some ways of the official 
mechanisms of the U.S. State Department, the Secret Service, the military. I mean, it is hard to screw up mm-hmm. an Air Force One arrival and a trans and a trooping the line of a Saudi uh, color guard getting into the beast limo and that slow ride down the boulevard in Riyadh surrounded on all sides by a dozen horses. That's a picture that is hard to screw up. It's a picture, frankly, that President Clinton or President Obama, can't speak for President Bush, might have said, well, we don't need that kind of pomp and circumstance. But if you're Donald Trump, you say, bring it on. Yeah. And Obama wasn't afforded that pomp and circumstance when he visited Saudi Arabia. He wasn't. Uh, It's nice if you think that that's an important part of the job. I think that President Obama would remember the landing that he had in uh, China uh, last year or um, I think it was when he landed in China and there was a dispute with the local protocol office and they did not roll up the official full-sized 747 air stairs to to allow the president to disembark. Instead, Obama said, screw it. Let's go down the, the pop-out stairs in the belly of the aircraft. And I think President Trump tweeted, if that ever happened to me, I'd say, you know, fold up the door, boys, and let's take off and get the heck out of here. Uh, Obama didn't stand on ceremony that way. What about the hand-holding? Uh, <laughs> you know, we I could study that gif over and over again. There, So far, there are two gifs. Yes. Uh, a hand-holding moment on the tarmac at Ben-Gurion Airport uh, and then a disembarking the plane in Rome. I watch it a hundred times, Mike, and I think that either there's it's loaded with symbolism or it's simply luck of the draw for an unlucky couple who is under the lens all the time. You will see, I think, in the newspapers that hit the newsstands tomorrow, a gorgeous shot shot from behind of the president and first lady gazing up at Michelangelo's ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, their hands clearly clasped together. I tweeted out, well, score one for the Office of White House handholding. The After the gifts uh, caught fire and they really did seem like Melania was slapping his hand away, I went searching, I'm sure a bunch of people did, for, okay, let's see all the evidence of handholding. There's not that much. And then I saw um, a, a Twitter account that you follow that goes through White House history, and, and they were posting every shot of every president ever holding hands with his wife. Yeah, I mean, I think when I looked very closely at the Trump inauguration January 20th, President and Mrs. Trump were holding hands a lot. Uh, But there was this indelible image that I thought was almost the picture of the first hundred days of the motor of the motorcade pulling up to the White House, President Trump about to greet President Mrs. Obama in their final few minutes as residents of the White House. And Trump gets right out of the car and bounds up the stairs and shot from behind. There is Melania Trump lonely holding a Tiffany box left in the dust. Yeah. And I thought that that spoke volumes. But, uh, you know, this is what happens to any celebrity couple that is in the spotlight from the moment they leave their private sanctum sanctorum. What was the deal with the orb? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think you and I, Mike, are both students of uh, of 1970s uh, art house cinema, and I couldn't help but thinking of Woody Allen and Sleeper and the fabulous (laughs) orgasmatron scene uh, when Woody brings out a similar uh, glowing orb for his guests and they uh, they get sexually aroused. Uh, It didn't look like King Solomon quite got sexually aroused when he touched it, but but he looked a little spooked. Yeah, but but would this be considered a mistake? 
at the moment, do you think the uh, learned advancement said, oh, this picture will get mocked? As I sort of commented at the time, I'm a big fan of using props and backdrops in one form or, or another to distinguish one picture from another. The notion of what an orb is in popular culture and our own adult brains can lead us down so many different rabbit holes. Maybe I would have avoided an orb if that's <laughs> knowing that that's a word that people like Mike Pesca would seize orb. on. But there was also the sword dance, and there's a lot of weirdness that happens on foreign trips. And in some ways, that's what would inure well to President Trump if he had a few uh, off the record comments with the media or some some moments to answer questions and and make light of it. He is trying to be a gracious guest. Uh, the Saudis have invested a lot of money, not only in the, the palace that he gave the speech in, but the center for uh, extremist messaging that that orb served as the, the ribbon cutting moment of. So uh, you have to uh, thank and respect the Saudis for all the efforts that they are making. And if putting your palm on an orb was part of that process, so be it. The, the fact that this trip is going well, not even in the context of this trip, but the president hasn't issued forth tweets that hurt him domestically or, you know, change the conversation. Does this demonstrate in, in a way that the White House lacks a way to corral the president to keep him from his worst instincts when he's at home and doesn't have a fully programmed day? I think that's another great question, something I wrestle with all the time uh, as I study through Getty images and AP images, almost the storyboard effect of a president's week from Monday morning until Friday night or they head to Mar-a-Lago. When you live in what is essentially compared to the opulence we saw in the Saudi palaces, a pretty small apartment complex in the White House and a small office building in the West Wing, uh, there is uh, not a lot of elbow room to move around. Uh, we had heard some reports that President Trump was a little hesitant about leaving the United States and the comfort of his own bed for nine days. Remember, right up to this point, between Mar-a-Lago, Bedminster, and the White House, he had never spent one night away from his own bed. Yeah. And now he's at the Ritz in Riyadh and moving through the Villa Taverna in Rome and into Belgium. But I think what he'll see, and it'll be interesting when we do have a moment of his own reflection that he's quite enjoying this and that actually this is the president of the United States that he signed up for, not the president who is sort of cocooned in the Oval Office and can only get his word out when he walks across the hallway to the Roosevelt Room or into the Rose Garden or the East Room, that, that having a horse-drawn escort or actually spending all this time aloft in his airplane and having the headlines and newspapers of all the countries he's visiting thinking it's the best thing that ever happened. Yeah. This is clearly what he thought the presidency was all about. He likes being a head of state possibly more than being the head of government. Exactly. Mm -hmm. How important is this? How important is this in 2017? Uh, I think there's a different answer in 1997. But just given the onslaught of information, you know, a gif like uh, a gif like the hand slap, I think with Bill Clinton would be a hundred times as huge. Um, but it's just that there's so much information now that could get lost. Mike, I'm looking at the photo stream right now of AP images. I could switch over to Getty. And uh, for every hand slap, there are a thousand other images of the president looking like he's doing things just right. So this is all a lot of pageantry. Uh, it's highly scripted. Real news, real tragedy interferes. And then by next Monday morning, 
President Trump will be back in the Oval Office, back in the Roosevelt Room, back enduring the onslaught of everything that faces him back in the United States. Josh King is the author of Off Script. He is a presidential advance man alum. He, he knows all about polyoptics. Thank you, Josh. Thanks, Mike. And now the spiel. Trump, Donald J. Trump, has long promised to be the voice of the voiceless, the overlooked, the dispossessed. The forgotten men and women of our country will be forgotten no longer. Well, there is a man who is forgotten. He once had a voice. He has that voice no more. He did not labor at the lathe, nor the mill, nor the mine, though in a way he did mine the cold ore of celebrity journalism for sparkling nuggets. There was once a time we would thank such a man for his labors as he rode the bus to work, humble, hardworking, with tic-tac fresh breath. His name is Billy Bush. And the message he heard from his fellow Americans was simple, and it was cold. We don't want you anymore. But now Billy Bush is back. He's back in a front page article in The Hollywood Reporter, complete with a fashion photo shoot and a Q&A conducted in the presence of the forgotten Billy's lawyer and his publicist. Now, the publicist went unnamed, but we were left to wonder if perhaps this publicist also bravely served as the publicist to all those forgotten machinists of Local 548 or the United Mine Workers of America. Billy Bush was there to ask for forgiveness to demonstrate his growth, to offer other strategies of his fateful conversation that day on that bus. Today, he says, quote, I wish I had changed the topic. I wish I had said, does anyone want water? Or it looks like it's going to rain. He liked TV and competition. I could have said, can you believe the ratings on whatever? I didn't have the strength of character to do it. Sure, yeah, I'm thinking that's a great way to change the convo, the hydration gambit. But let's first remember what Billy Bush did say instead of bringing up a glass of water. Better not be the publicist. No, it's, it's her. It's yeah, that's her, with the gold. I'm going to use some Tic Tacs just in case I start kissing her. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. You just kiss. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab them by the pussy. I could do anything. Hmm, glass of water. If only he had asked for a glass of water. Then, instead of the toadyish bush cackling inside the most infamous quote from that moment, that quote could have gone like this. Whatever you want. Grab him by the pussy. Would you care for a glass of water? I could do anything. Now, to be fair, in 2005, it was harder to distract a focused Donald Trump than it is today. In 2005, Twitter didn't exist. And 2005 must have been a tough year for Billy Bush. I mean, his first cousin was president of the United States. His other first cousin was governor of the fourth most populous state in America. But Billy Bush tells The Hollywood Reporter of himself, quote, I remember that guy. He was almost sycophantic. I was an insecure person, a bit of a pleaser wanting celebrities to like me and fit in. You know what? It sounds 
much more severe with the music that the Hollywood Reporter's website used to score the video with some of these poll quotes and shots of Billy Bush. Quote, my skin is definitely thicker now and my heart is a little softer underneath it. Billy Bush has done some self-work. He enrolled in the Hoffman Process. That's a $5,000 a week program that describes itself as, quote, a residential and personal growth retreat that helps participants identify negative behaviors, moods, and ways of thinking that developed unconsciously and were conditioned in childhood. Here's Bush's description. For 13 hours a day, it's a study on your life and your negative patterns. At one point, you're on your knees with a baseball bat and a pillow in front of you, and you're literally bashing these negative patterns that you've identified in your life. For me, one was judginess. And yet, when Bush was on that bus in 2005, he didn't seem so condemnatory or, or full of disapproval. Have a little hug for the Donnelly. Just got off the bus. Like okay, hug, absolutely. Melania <laughs> said this was okay. I just got off the bus. Uh, there we, we go. Excellent. Okay, in case you missed it, Billy Bush wasn't just there. He was totally egging on this foul megalomaniac and making slide propositions to the actress that they were meeting, which was a blatant wink to Trump's lechery which is why he was bounced from the job. I get that. And I do believe in rehabilitation. And I don't believe in judging a guy by his worst moment, or at least the worst moment we have a tape of. As one of Billy Bush's champions quoted in the Hollywood Reporter piece says, you build an identity and a reputation over 15 years and you lose it in 15 hours. True. Sad. Except Billy Bush's identity and reputation was as a lightweight chaser of irrelevant nonsense. The profession to which Billy Bush wants to return, is some kind of journalistic fluffer. It is not based on anything of substance. Him losing his job is like when the fidget spinner trend crashes in a couple years or when Beanie Babies went away. They did not deserve that elevated status to begin with. He was lucky to have his job. Bush says, I completely have owned and accepted my part in all of this, but I'm not a victim. There are people who are going through things far worse than me. He could perhaps delve into that more, except elsewhere, the article notes, a multi-million dollar severance package and a non-disclosure agreement prevents him from going into details about his exit from NBC News. Here's the last section I want to highlight. It was a Q&A between the reporter and Bush. You are clearly remorseful. Do you think Trump regrets it? Bush, I don't know. I don't know. Did you vote for him? Bush, you're asking a journalist the way he voted? I've never made politics and prior votes public knowledge. One part of me respects this journalistic stance if it were, in fact, taken by a journalist. You're not a journalist. You're Billy Bush. That's it for today's show. Just producer Chris Berube is still waiting for the rehabilitation of English singer-songwriter Kate Bush. Mary Wilson, just producer, would like the Hollywood Reporter piece on the bush that Sean Spicer was hiding inside. Yeah, I spent a week in Napa, which is very hard on me because I'm a deciduous conifer and the soil is actually quite arid. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, wants to know how soon is too soon to play music's push push in the bush. The gist. Do you like it like this? Yes, I like it like this. Boom, peru, da, peru, du, peru, and thanks for listening. I ask you, 
to go to Apple Podcasts where you can leave a review. Perhaps you thought of this as the iTunes store. Perhaps that was true in the past. But now it's called Apple Podcasts, and we'd love to hear your thoughts on the show on Apple Podcasts. Give us a rating. 